I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astell. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 22, we continue our discussion of The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama from 1992. Okay, last time we discussed the first half of Fukuyama's book in which he evaluates whether history has moved in a discernible direction. The end of history is a concept introduced by philosophers Hegel and Kant. They argued that history will end when no further progress can be made regarding social progress, uh, that is, liberty and equality. Fukuyama's task, as he sees it, is to determine whether humankind has reached the conclusion that the advent of liberal democracy marks the end and offering the best possible society. The last time we discussed Fukuyama's evaluation of the alternatives to liberal democracy, namely authoritarianism and socialism, we got into those pretty deeply. This episode, we want to dive into his fascinating insights relative to how humans judge social progress, whether social progress has been attained and to what extent we've, we've reached it. He argues that the quest for recognition is the central problem of politics and is the answer to this question. So recognition is, is a term that he coins. And I think by recognition, he means the desire to be treated with dignity and worth. It's a non-economic source of motivation. Fukuyama associates this desire with thymos, uh, which is a Greek word. And thymos is an innate sense of justice. It's the, he calls it the part of the soul that demands recognition. So as he evaluates recognition and whether we've reached the, the end of history, he's going to, again, take a, a look at it from the left and from the right. And on the left, the criticism would be, the left, the left would say that universal recognition in liberal democracy is incomplete because capitalism creates economic inequality and requires a division of labor that results in unequal recognition. And then from the, from the right, the criticism would be, and here's a, the voice of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. He says uh, liberal democracy produces what he calls men without chess. They're composed of desire and reason, but they lack thymos. They lack that inner desire. And this is the last man. So in the title, the title of the book is The End of History, which we discussed last time. And now we're going to kind of introduce this idea of the last man, which is which is a conception devised by, by Nietzsche. And the last man, he says, is someone who has no desire to be recognized as greater than others. Nietzsche says, without such desire, no excellence or achievement is possible. So the last man is sort of a typical citizen of liberal democracy in that he gives up any pride or belief in his own superior worth in favor of a comfortable self-preservation, he says. And so liberal democracy has kind of a moderating effect. So you see that these pull in two different directions. On the one hand, on the left, they say universal recognition is incomplete because we still have income inequality. You know, as we dive into this, I think there's a lot to talk about because it's so relevant for today. And then on 
And then on the right, and I think obviously Fukuyama is is sympathetic to this view that you know, hey, people are people are inherently unequal. You're not going to have an equal society if people can't rise above because you know, on the right we'll say equal recognition is problematic because people are inherently unequal and you're going to have you're going to if you want to advance the society, you need people who are willing to stand up and be greater than and say I'm better than and uh, to work to outdo uh, the competitors. So those, those are kind of the two, two tugs that I think we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And I think these get reflect the, to me, these really put in words, a lot of what you feel about the conflict in society, about the way people look at how we should, how we should live, how we should get along. And, and the whole, the whole book kind of was different than a lot of what we've read earlier in this series. I mean, we, a lot of what we looked at from other authors was how how should we organize society? What is the goal we should have for society? And I think Fukuyama takes it even a step deeper and says, what do people actually want out of society? Like, mm-hmm. What is the thing that each man and woman is yearning for in his soul? And that that, that recognition thing, and what does it mean? I, I found it really enlightening. Really. Yeah. It, was, uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty eye-opening. The, this idea of this does liberal democracy by making us all equal grind us down into a state where we can't have greatness? Um, that's a, that's a really interesting question because it's something, it seems like part of that American dream is the chance to achieve greatness, mm-hmm. you know, I and mean, a lot of what greatness was in the ancient world he goes through is, you know, a lot of it was warfare and stuff like that, you know, now, and now that we're into liberal democracy and we are more, now advanced supposedly we don't go around killing each other show how great we are but we do want to achieve in other areas you know somebody wants to be the best at business the best at sports the best best writer the best artist mm-hmm. uh, and i think in every field there's a, there's that drive to be the best there's that competition and if you grind that out of us are we still human you know what is it even possible to grind it all out of us i mean maybe that's part of the failure of the soviet system is the in its, you know, unceasing desire to force equality on something that is, as he writes, you know, nature makes us unequal in many ways. We have unequal gifts and unequal motivation, unequal drive. When you try and grind it all down, what does it make? You know, I mean, does it, does it force that desire for greatness that he calls megalothymia? Does it force it, you know, does it, like when you're squeezing a balloon and the air goes one way and you squeeze it and it goes out the other way. And, you know, I mean, can it, some things can't be suppressed. So I thought this was a really, it's, it's a deep philosophical discussion, but one that I found it very readable and I'm not always the best fan of philosophy, but this was, uh, I thought it was a, a intelligently written and accessible while expressing some pretty high flown concepts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was so good. It was like exciting for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm into Same it. Here. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I'm telling my wife, like, man, this is so good. But okay, so on that topic of megalothymia, so again, thymos, we say, is this innate human sense, a desire for recognition. And megalothymia is the desire to be recognized as greater than others. So we're still talking about recognition, but it's, instead of sort of this equal recognition that is he calls isothymia 
megalophimia is the desire to be recognized as better than, as greater than. You know, you, you, you went through this, but he says, Fukuyama says, to the extent that liberal democracy purges megalophimia from life and substitutes with rational consumption, just going to work so that you can come home and watch TV on the weekend, well, we become last men. Mm-hmm. And, and the last man, what is the last man? Well, the last man, again, is kind of that guy who has no ambition and no desire to be recognized. And Nietzsche develops this idea as last man as the victorious slave. And what does he mean by that? Well, he agreed fully with Hegel that Christianity was what he called a slave ideology. And what he means by that is that that uh, Christianity kind of originated, he says, in, in his telling of it, Christianity originated in the realization that the weak could overcome the strong if they banded together in a herd and they, by using the weapons of guilt and conscience. In other words, like uh, Christianity, it was a, a kind of this massive plot to uh, bring power down to the the lower levels of society. And the way they did it is through through new cultural norms and through cultural control and and creating these new doctrines of, you know, the strong are not the best. It's actually blessed be the, you know, the, you know, the poor in spirit and the humble and the meek shall inherit the earth and mm-hmm. so forth. So it was, it was kind of a, kind of a large plot to sort of bring power to, to the masses. And he says they could do that if they were, if they band together in a herd. But what happens from there is, um, you know, and he calls democracy is basically a secular, secularized form of Christianity. So last time we even, we even mentioned this, that liberal democracy really is an outgrowth of Christian thinking. And this is how, you know, it's sort of like the original idea in history of, you know, humans are equal. And it's kind of like began with, you know, humans are equal before God. We're all children of God or whatever. And, you know, liberal democracy is kind of the secularized version of that. And there's a lot to be said that's good. I mean, I think you and I would say, yes, perfect, great, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Nietzsche kind of gives us like the, the ugly side, the ugly version of that same sentiment. I think we saw, maybe it was Tocqueville who talked about the, the relationship between Christianity and, and, and liberal democracy. But yeah, Nietzsche, as a, I think it's fair to say, a hater of Christianity, uh, yeah. Yeah. definitely just turns that on its head and it and uses it as a way to attack democracy because it, is sort of a secular outgrowth of something he already hates. It's um, I've never read much Nietzsche, so I've become more familiar with his works through through this book. But um, you can see why he's kind of inspiring to the sort of anti-Christian wing of fascism because he, yeah, he ce- sure. celebrates the he's like we should be ruled by the great. You know, he has no respect for the weak. You know, right. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very it's a it's a it's an ideology that, has, that rings with certain echoes of the mid 20th century that none of us are really that into anymore. That's right. I, I think that's right. But uh, you know, what, what's the relevance here to Fukuyama? Well, because what he's saying is there is there is this megalothymia, this uh, desire to be better than, and 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 the way Nietzsche describes it is sort of like what what liberal democracy, what this sec- secularized Christianity has done is basically lobotomized the population brought the great men down and because the herd is in control and so it it keeps those you know the 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 uh, caesars or you know the napoleons or 
even the Einsteins from, you know, getting out ahead and, and creating and being, uh, being great and, and, uh, overcoming others. Nietzsche thinks this is what liberal democracy does to people. And that's what he calls the last man is last men are these guys who are just content to go to, go to work so that you can have recreation on the weekends so you can crack open a beer and watch, uh, you know, whatever sitcom that you don't want to miss or whatever. And so he says, basically, you know, like greater men will find this kind of consumption and this last man life boring and will rebel because these days, really the only outlets he says are in kind of like you're pushed. This is what Fukuyama says. These people with ambition like this, they're pushed into the economics, you know, sort of like capitalism, like here, here, take this outlet, you know, like be entrepreneurial, have, you know, build a company rather than, mm-hmm. you know, overcome the world. And you have, we have sports too, to compete where you have actual winners and losers. This, this is kind of an outlet for megalothymia and the desire to prove yourself better than. It's interesting. I, I guess that that could constitute a success of liberal democracy in itself is that, you know, people who want to achieve, achieve greatness, no longer need to take to the battlefield, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't even, they don't even take to government as much. Although I think there are many young, bright things on the left who see the best path to greatness as going through government. You know, the kind of kids who run for office when they're about 30 and there's nothing, mm-hmm. yeah. no, no blemish on their background. You know, the ones who seem like they were running for president since they came out of the womb, you know, that, that sort of like, made to be a politician kid. I think that's more common on the left because they, even in our limited government system are starting to see that this is the, these, this is the path to power. Other than that, other than, and that's, I still think an exception because there's plenty of lefties who get big in business like Silicon Valley. I think, uh, that's kind of a success. And that, that kind of goes to Fukuyama's point that this is the best system for governing mankind because it, it, it is funneling our impulses in a rational way in a way that doesn't involve you know, murder oppression you know conquest it's saying yeah it'd be great it'd be great elsewhere you know it'd be great in a way that isn't uh you know nobody's getting killed you're just mm-hmm. you know making big bucks on wall street or whatever yeah right and so then on the flip side you have sort of the critique from the left which is, again, that universal recognition remains unfulfilled due to economic inequality and capitalism, is what Fukuyama says. Capitalism, you know, being this dynamic force that we just talked about, which creates opportunity for, for people to excel, but it's a very strong power. It's a very powerful tool for the left's goals as well, because it, he says, constantly attacks conventional social relationships and replaces with new stratification. Mm-hmm. based on skill and education. And I mean, I think this is absolutely true. I mean, I mean, there's no powerful tool for, for pushing against tribalism really than, than capitalism, because you have economic uh, incentives, these, these uh, economic opportunities, you know, y- y- you don't want, if you, if you're the owner of a bus company, you don't want to have, you know, have the population have to go sit in the back of the bus in your state or whatever, you know, I mean, you want to, you want to, be able to let everybody come in your diner because you want to make money from everybody. You know, it's not helpful to, to split and slice and dice. And if you're going to, you're going to sell your widget, 
you know, that's your highest priority is to get that widget sold. It's not to sort of pick and choose and say, well, he's not one of our group or something like that. So I don't know if I really want him taking the, you know, buying my product that'll give me this huge profit. You know, no, that that's, it just breaks down those barriers and those social relationships that engender more tribalism. Well, this kind of pushes against that, presses against it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that the two sides of capitalism have different effects on stratification, you know, because like the consumer aspect of capitalism is definitely leveling, you know, like, I mean, the, the president's iPhone and every, and some, you know, random kid's iPhone, it's the same iPhone. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, we're all, there's always been elite products and, you know, luxury goods, but for a lot of the big things that we're doing, you know, I mean, it's basically the same, even if it's a fancier car, it's still a car, you know, even if it's a, you know, a nicer clothes, they're still clothes, you know, the, the difference between the consumption of the rich and the poor. I mean, there's, it's more of like how much than the thing itself. So that, that sort of mass marketing does make us more or makes us rather less stratified. But I guess, I guess what they're saying is the, the production system of capitalism is, you know, makes it such that the, uh, you know, they use the iPhone as the example again. There, Steve Jobs is on one level, and the new Apple guy—I forget his name—but then you get, you know, the people making the iPhone in China or whatever are on a considerably different level. So that, you know, that stratification results in a definitely unequal uh, dignity, and the way people look at you is different. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought this point was interesting about how um, it's easier to see. The, ex- the, the problem of too much of that is easier to see than it is the too much of socialism. Because when there's too much socialism, it's just, you know, it's it's like you were saying, it's grinding down the great and sort of like squeezing them out of society. The great inventions, the great ideas are less prevalent. You know, it's just creeping mediocrity and mm-hmm. servility. But that's harder to see right away. You know, you're looking at because it's not, there's not one example of it because you don't know the thing you could have had. Right, yeah. Whereas, I mean, this, this, I thought this line, the excesses of freedom, the arrogant display of a Leona Helmsley or a Donald Trump, the crimes committed by an Ivan Bosky or Michael Milken, the damage done by the Exxon Valdez to Prudhoe Bay are much more visible than the evils of extreme equality, like creeping mediocrity or tyranny of the majority. I mean, first of all, I thought it was funny you mentioned Trump in 92. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, but it's true. When you look at the you know, whoever it is, like the, uh, uh, what's the name of that kid who went to jail <laughs> with the pharmaceutical? Oh uh, yeah. The Milan you know, CEO. Yeah. You know, you see the, uh, you see somebody who uses the capital system in a way to defraud people or whatever. And it's very prominent. And you look at that person and say, that's part of the problem. And the socialists point to that and say, see, this is what happens when you don't listen to us. And there's not that example on the other side. There's not that, um, it's not as easy to show the damage of socialism, although it's probably more damage there. It's just mm-hmm. spread among all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, I thought that, that was just a, yeah. was a good point by Fukuyama. It's a brilliant point. And how, how can you prove that, that you stifled the next, uh, Steve jobs or whatever? Well, you can't, yeah, you can't prove the negative. Yeah. But, you know, to your point, like what capitalism does is it creates inequality. It does. And, you know, folks on the right would say, well, that's be- mostly because you're going to have 
people who have more ambition, more conscientiousness, who work harder, who are just smarter. And that's just how it is. And it's good for all mm -hmm. of us because we all benefit from it. But folks on the left, and you and I know this, because we all have friends, it's just they're just so preoccupied with the fact that there isn't equality of outcomes, which is really what all they care about. And so he calls this isothymia. This is in contrast to megalothymia. So isothymia is the human desire for equal recognition. <laughs> and But, you know, to the point that you just made, he says more social equality means less liberty. Every effort to give the disadvantaged equal dig dignity will mean the abridgment of the freedom or rights of other people. This is something you and I have talked about a dozen times, at least on this pod yep. podcast is yes, you can level uh, and you can create rights, but so many of these rights create a responsibility on the part of someone else. And this, this is, this is a tug and pull that Fukuyama says, there is no fixed point at which liberty and equality come into balance. So this is, this is the crux of whether or not we've reached the end of history really is mm -hmm. on the right is they're saying like, well, we, we certainly have not reached the end point. If we have the great men are stifled or never come to be because of this leveling and this herd that's, uh, this, um, last man herd mentality that's set in and uh, this attitude of, you know, let's just be comfortable and happy with our iPhone and, and call, call it a day versus on the left who desperately want to, to ensure equality of outcomes. Like we can't possibly have somebody doing better than someone else. It just gets under their skin in a deep visceral mm. way. <laughs> and there's no fixed point at which these two come into balance. And so no, can, can you ever say like we've reached the, the ultimate? Well, no, because you're going to have people who are like, well, we're not getting enough of this or enough of that. And Fukuyama says basically like, well, I think what we've learned is that he says dissatisfaction arises. Oh, let's see. Uh, we can conclude that no regime will satisfy all men in all places. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a hard answer, but I think at least in what, where we've gotten in discarding some of the more extreme ideologies of the past is that if this pendulum does swing, it's now swinging within a much narrower bounds. That's a good point. You know, with within a liberal democracy, you might, you might swing between, you know, like a, I don't know, a Rand Paul and an Elizabeth Warren, but these are neither of these people is going to establish a libertarian utopia or a communist utopia. They're both still, you know, within striking distance of the American mainstream. And I think it, as we try different things and maybe you could say we're approaching that balance. Although I, I think he's right. I think you'll never get it because people change their minds on things. And, and the longer they go without having experienced the failure of a certain program or other, the more likely they are to try it again and in, in different form. You know, as you see a lot of the bad ideas of the thirties are coming back because we don't remember them. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but it's, that's, that, I think that's kind of a, a, a problem with his thesis that this might be the end of history is because he can't really pin down what this is. It's more like it's just a, a range, you know, what, where is this balance? Well, it's uh, somewhere in here. So I think there's still more history to come in just sorting that out. It's just more about fine tuning than, than the big picture that it used yeah. to be. I mean, even that is a, fascinating insight i 
I think it's something that hadn't really occurred to me in that, at least in those terms. I want to talk for a second, you know, still sticking with the left side of the ledger, what he says about uh, contemporary Marxism. So in the first place, he says, Marxists, this is for communism, promote, promote an extreme form of social equality at the expense of liberty. He says to eradicate natural differences, because humans are not the same and talent is not distributed evenly. To eradicate natural differences, it was necessary to create a monstrous state. I, of course, r- recognize this, but but he just puts it in such stark terms that it just really jumped out at me. Like, in in order to keep the Ubermensch, the Overman of Nietzsche, mm-hmm. down, well, we have to create we have to create this monstrous state to just like suppress, make sure that all outcomes are equal in order to do that we're not rising the you know raising the bottom up we're just putting a hard cap on the on the top making sure that nobody can do better than anyone else and it's like oh, yeah that, wow, that, that yeah. echoes some of our some of our earlier readings who just who make the point that in order to have this equality it requires uh despotism uh-huh. essentially i mean you can't you can't have small government and enforced equality. You know, you can't leave people alone and make them equal. Yeah, yeah. So, it, I mean, Marx always had this idea that after, after you grind people into this new shape long enough, then the, the state will gradually disappear and we'll all, you know, live together in harmony and equality. And it's never happened and it never will happen because without that, without the state forcing you into that mold, it's natural for people to rebel. I mean, it's natural for people to seek greatness when they have the ability to seek it. And that that's, you know, when you get somebody who says he's an anarcho-socialist or something, you say, that, that's insane because <laughs> they don't go together. You, you've, there's no socialism that's not state socialism. Yeah, it is a great insight. So for, fast forward to today, he wrote this in 92, but, you know, he says, Contemporary Marxism has, have, has kind of moved off the economics wagon, which I think we've all recognized. And he says, forms of inequality such as racism, sexism, and homophobia have displaced the traditional class issue for the left. Holy cow, is that true or what? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's prescient for sure. Once equal recognition of dignity, the isothymia is satisfied. The next phase will attack natural forms of inequality. And I'm like, exactly. Mm-hmm. how about you know hello participation trophies you know we're all winners how about how about mayor de blasio in new york like yeah. uh eliminating the test in order to get into these magnet schools it's like well i, I don't like the results that the that the test is giving because we're only you know there's too many asians going to the school so uh, we're just going to eliminate the test yeah. <laughs> because we want a different outcome or you know, like lockstep pay in the federal government or something like that it doesn't matter if you know if if you're a high achiever well, you're still going to be GS 15, you know, step 12 with yep. with your neighbor who's a deadbeat. You know? And that, that, that kind of gets to one of the, the points he goes to in chapter 28 with um, the idea that universal recognition, Nietzsche would say, it makes all recognition meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, if you do, if you if you if you enforce these equal equality of results, you think you're giving dignity to everybody. But if everybody gets it for nothing, is it dignity? You know, I mean, like he talked about self, self-respect 
can't be unearned. You know, I mean, that's when he attacks the modern self-esteem movement, which is if anything even bigger today than it was in when this was written. Yeah. 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 Everybody's great. The participation trophy, like you say, everybody is, everybody's good. I'm okay. You're okay. We should all be proud of ourselves. But if you haven't done anything, you know, you haven't done anything, you know, <laughs> you know, in your heart, you haven't done anything to deserve this greatness that everyone is saying that we all equally share in. So I, I wonder, I wonder if we're starting to see that more is just the idea that unearned universally distributed dignity or respect or esteem uh, without any moral code to judge it against without any anything, any measure of what makes you good, what makes you bad is worthless. I, I think this idea that you're developing, I think this is why this book is a conservative book and he's a conservative author. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about conservatism here because, because it's what, essentially what we're getting, you're getting at is there, there is a human nature. You know, we actually do recognize if someone is, deserves what they had, what they got, you know, we actually do recognize mm -hmm. if someone's better than me at something or, or someone else. And there's, it's not just a, a desire on the part of the Ubermensch to, to dominate the weak. It's also a recognition by everyone else. Like, yeah, he pretty much is faster than me. You know, <laughs> he's a better ball player than I am. And, and sometimes yeah. you just have to tip your hat to somebody else and say, yeah, all right, you did it better. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, he gets into, he kind of develops that point as one of the traps of liberal democracy is that it requires toleration. Toleration is good. I mean, that's a, that's an American principle and that, that other countries have also sometimes, but definitely here at the idea of, you know, you're from a different racial background than me, different religion, different part of the country, whatever. We can all get along. We can all live side by side. This is a good principle, but when you elevate toleration above every other principle and it starts to crowd them out and then it, it becomes that there are no principles, you know, like, I think when it forces in, it forces out judgment and makes you just accept everything as well, who am I to say mm -hmm. relativism? Um, yeah. And relativism in Fukuyama's telling leads to mediocrity. And I think that's a, that's a good point. It's not just, I mean, to me, it always bothered me just because it was obviously untrue that, you know, you, there are things that are good and there are things that are bad and it's okay to say that. But when we, when tolerance is our only guidestone, then we, we, we are not guided at all. We are just accepting everything and it, uh, imputing equal recognition to everybody. That's something you definitely see out there. I mean, you, you criticize people for their ideas and then maybe it's part of just this, uh, this change in Marxism about what which inequalities they're attacking, like you were saying earlier, you criticize somebody for your ideas and they say, well, you're attacking me as a person. You're erasing me. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. you're not seeing me. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It, toleration and acceptance are two different things. We can, we can agree to disagree on things, but we should still disagree. So I, I think, yeah, this attack on relativism is also kind of what makes it a conservative book because increasingly conservatives are the one who are saying, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong and we can prove some of them. And that's true. You know, that, that a is a, that like Rand would say, uh, you know, I mean, that's, 
that's become a conservative principle, which is strange because it seems like a very obvious principle. Mm -hmm. It's it's one that has been crowded out on the left. And I think despite all this talk of uh, the progress of history, which is usually something we hear from the left, this is a deeply conservative book. Yeah. Well, to build on that a little bit, Fukuyama says, morality involves the distinction between better and worse, good and bad, which seems to violate the democratic principle of tolerance. I mean, so tolerance is good. I mean, we want to be able to tolerate. We want to be have our you know kids go to the same school with our school is like a little United Nations. My kids elementary school, and it's great. Let's mm-hmm. tolerate and but ultimately, like another reason it's a conservative book is he you know he dives into this question of like of community and the possibility of community and sort of like is, have, have we reached the pinnacle of of sort of human flourishing in a society if we don't have strong communities. This is again a, a conversation we've had over multiple books. He says, if the strongest communities are bound together by certain moral laws that define right and wrong for its members, these same moral laws also define the, that community's inside and outside as well. If those moral laws mm-hmm. are to have any meaning, those excluded from the community by their unwillingness to accept them must have a different worth or moral status from the community's members. But democratic societies constantly tend to move from simple tolerance to assertion of equality, which is this relativism. They oppose the kind of exclusivity engendered by strong and cohesive communities. So we've read a few books that focus exactly on this. Like, you know, it's not individualism and capitalism that's uh, creating the pathologies in society. And instead, it's the fact that we're pulling away from communities. We don't have those intermediary institutions you know, we don't have the little platoons. We don't have our mm-hmm. communities. We don't have strong net communities anymore because as he says, we can be uh, under liberal democracy and uh, this universal equality, we can be recognized by the state as equal, but we're not recognized by our neighbors at all. Like our neighbors don't even know our names. We don't know them. They don't know, they don't know us because we don't have that strong community. Well, and how do you build, a, how do you build communities? Well, there has to be like some difference, you know, uh, this, this is what the left hates so much about religion in the first place is that there's this exclusivity element, you know, we're going to heaven and you're going to hell, <laughs> but you yeah. need that in order for some cohesion and, for, and, and, and that's a, that's a form of recognition too. You're recognized in your religious community as someone who's a, you know, part of the community of believers and we're, we're, we're in this together. We're working, we're trying to build Zion or build, you know, build God's society on earth, you know, to prepare, you know, but you have to have these rationales that that the left just completely despises you know that that also pushes against universal quality and universal recognition instead you're saying well no i don't want universal recognition i I also i want to be tolerant of you but i also i mean there's something deep within us that wants you know we want to be recognized as part of our group and and that that means there's an inside and outside and and an exclusivity element yeah he he stresses that the small group is more important to people's sense of well-being than the big group because i mean it is in it's impossible to get recognized either in the philosophical sense or the literal sense in a big group. Yeah. You know, if, if the group we belong to is America, there's more than 300 million of us, you know, I mean, what, how, how is the, the government granting us recognition? It doesn't know our name. It knows our social security number on a tax form. You know, it doesn't, it knows our selective service registration, but it doesn't really, you know, at your, and you can see, you can see why churches are good at this kind of group because they have a code, but there are even other groups too. I mean, other fraternal organizations, you know, uh, secular charity groups, things like that, where you, where you're trying to achieve a thing, you know, a group that gets together 
to affect the result. The kind of the kind of groups that, that Tocqueville talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, you want some improvement in your neighborhood. So we all get together because we all agree in this group that this thing would be good. That we should build a new ball field over here. We should raise money for it. I mean, that's not a whether we should have a ball field is not a moral judgment, but it is a judgment, you know. So, and I think that that makes the group a thing and the out group another thing, right? Like, how's the how does the how does the federal government recognize us? You know, how does it tell us that we have worth? You know, I mean, like you work in an office, you, in the break room, there's a thing hanging up from the Department of Labor that tells you your rights. <laughs> you know, that, that's not the same as 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 a as your minister or you know the 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 leader of whatever fraternal group you belong to or neighborhood association saying, Oh yeah, that's what you've done there is good. Or, you know, and you're getting the respect of the people in that group because of something you've done or said, you know, that's, that's a lot more meaningful than these, you know, diffuse uh, benefits that come from the code of federal regulations or something. Right. I mean, it's a recognition of Kyle, you know, Kyle, yeah. you, you, you're great. You, because you've done this and you're part of this and you're part of us and you're, and you, as opposed to, you know, on the left is like, well, we don't need to worry about like whether the federal government recognizes your Kyle. You know, the main point is we need equality of outcome. So did you as a, you know, as a person, uh, did, yeah. did you have as much money as the next guy? And, you know, did you have uh, all the education opportunity, you know, were, were you did, not just opportunity, but were your outcomes the exact same as, as person five, four, seven, eight, two, two, eight, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, there's no feeling in that. That's, that's just bureaucracy. Um, and some of what comes out of it might be okay. It depends on, you know, what law and what regulation we're looking at, but none of it is fulfilling that desire to be recognized. There's no dignity in, you know, obeying the overtime laws <laughs> they're 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 good but there's no dignity in it it's just a it's just a, a thing that we've chosen to organize our labor force around yeah these the, the platoons i mean it, it comes back to the to berkey burke's platoons i think always in in conservative discussions mm-hmm. and here, here it is again yeah and he makes this point that in order for democracy to flourish, you have to basically have these kind of these outlets. And so liberal democracy doesn't flourish on its own accord. You, you, you basically need these, these mini group recognitions in order to sort of contribute to the larger whole. Otherwise, the larger whole just starts to fall apart. And, and frankly, I think we're actually seeing that in practice right now with the rise of social media and the internet and and that well, we thought we were atomized before, but the level of atomization is it's an order of a magnitude more potent. You know, like what does liberal democracy have to say really about how to you know, build communities back up again? Well, it kind of doesn't. So, yeah, it's a tough one because, and we've seen it throughout this, throughout these podcasts, is the, the, the conflict between individualism and strong communities. So we, we have this, we, he describes the Anglo-Saxon ideal of men having perfect rights, but no perfect duties to their communities. Any moral obligation being contractual and the community existing only to protect the individual's rights. Yeah. That, that's not a stable way to organize a community. I mean, it's, it, I would say government exists to protect men's rights, but 
in between the big government and the individual person, there's got to be something else that's more than just a contractual relationship. There's that the thymos, the, the recognition, mm-hmm. the mutual recognition of like-minded individuals. Um, and that's what we've seen disappear as we become more connected nationally and globally and, and, you know, mass media and things, you know, it's, it's, and you know, I mean, that uh, technology is inevitable just as, you know, the printing press was probably crazy scary for, you know, a lot of people when it first came out, but look at the way these ideas are spreading. Anybody can read anything, you know, they, we got a handle on that. And I think eventually we will on technology too. But in the meantime, uh, these, these small intermediary institutions are just falling away. Mm-hmm. So his prognosis answering the big question, have we reached the end of history? And if so, you know, or, you know, are we falling into the trap of last man? He says contemporary America is much more in danger of becoming last men rather than reviving the passions of the first man, you know, or the over, over man, basically like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the desire to fight and have war and be better. Than that. So liberal democracy constitutes the best possible solution to the human problem. He thinks if over time, more societies with diverse cultures and histories exhibit long-term patterns of development, it could undermine some of these, some of these arguments, uh, of relativism rather than a thousand shoots blooming into as many different flowering plants. Mankind will come to seem like a long wagon train strung out along a road. So as he's evaluating, you know, all of this, our last episode, this episode, he's kind of coming to the conclusion that maybe we haven't actually reached the end of history, but it's looking more and more like we are almost there, you know, basically like liberal democracy probably is it. We, we probably have identified the end of the wagon train, but not everybody's recognized that. So there's still some question and there's still these tugs and pulls that we've been talking about today between like, does liberal democracy guarantee equality of outcomes? No. Does it provide space for great people of the earth to the ambitious to stand above and to fight? Well, it does level that a little bit. So then is there a better way? Is there a a more, can social progress be achieved better in some other system? It's It's still kind of like, well, theoretically, maybe yes, but in practice, you're never, he says, you're never going to find that perfect balance. So maybe there isn't anything better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, Finding the balance is what the, what's left of history, I guess, and, and and getting zeroing in on it, if never reaching it, it's like that, that Zeno's paradox. You know, we get get halfway to it, and then another halfway, and then another halfway. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, you get infinitesimally closer with each, but it doesn't ever reach it. Um, that's something, and I, I mean, I, I think you know what's going to become of humanity. I think. We are not, I think we're way less likely to resort to those old ideas of the first men seeking greatness through war. I mean, you see it, the advanced liberal democracies around the world are not, we fight our little wars of empire, but we're not, I think there's no appetite for the total war the way there was 
in the time between Napoleon and Hitler, where World War was a thing. And it, every generation, there was some sort of worldwide conflict that the most advanced nations in the world were bending all their efforts towards. And I think, I don't like to use metaphors of progress, but I think it is the sort of thing we've gotten past. So, so I, I don't disagree, but couldn't we easily have a setback? I mean, that's what I think. Like, you, yes to all that. Of course, that's all right. But how much, how much would really be required for a setback? Like, you know, North Korea launches a nuclear weapon and that, you know, starts another, a new, a whole new round of wars. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, it, it's easy to, we always sit where we sit when we're making these judgments. I mean, in, in the first first part of this book um i'm trying to find the name of he fukuyama mentions another book written around 1910 1912 that had the similar sort of well look we've gotten past war folks you know we're we're civilized people now we're about trade (laughs) commerce that's how we're going to achieve greatness and of course you know it was when you make pronouncements like that (laughs) it's almost inevitable that something's going to prove you wrong quickly and that did in that case. Um, it's so, it, you know, maybe, maybe we're just we're just living in our relatively peaceful time and seeing it as the natural consequence. Yeah, and he makes the, he makes the point too. It's when we're talking about the breaking out of the last men syndrome. It's not just you know great men who are going to be like Napoleon. It's also like we we see this around the world. We see it in America. We see it in college campuses. We see it around the world. You know, there's it's when life is predictable and comfortable and a little bit boring. He says, men will struggle for the sake of struggle. Basically they're going to manufacture struggle. You know, he says sometimes the absence of struggle sometimes leads youth to take to the streets, you know, and start a mini revolution or whatever, or, you know, like in, uh, in, in America and, and in Europe, the terrorists, a whole lot of them, a huge portion of them, especially in, uh, in, in Europe and America are come from, upper middle class families who really have no reason economically speaking to have this kind of hate and anger inside them. Yeah. He said kind of the same thing about the the sixties generation as being the most privileged, wealthy generation in human history. You know, they're all taken to the streets and, you know, in America, people thought it was a lot about the Vietnam war, but they were doing the same thing in Germany and France and, and, you know, places that weren't engaged in any sort of war. It was just that, well, we need to rebel at something. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. even on the left, people want that, that greatness, that individual achievement. I mean, uh, let's, why do we have 37 genders nowadays? Because everyone wants to think he's special. Yeah. yeah. And they're, in, if their ideology forces them not to be special in economic ways, they will find a new way, you know, because they're, they, this, this part of what we do. So I guess it's just a matter of does liberal democracy channel that into something that's guided by reason, not just uh, anarchy. All right. We're late. So what's his, uh, his punchline? He says, we know we've reached the end of history. If any reasonable person looking at the situation would be forced to agree that there had been only one journey and one destination. And he says, it is doubtful that we are at that point now. Really interesting mm-hmm. because from the outset, you're like, you know, the end of history and the last man. 
you know, it really conjures this idea of, oh, he thinks he's figured out like everything. But actually, he goes through this just brilliant and fascinating conversation and comes out at the end saying, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think we've done it. So <laughs> doesn't look like we're there. So, you know, stay tuned in 50 years. I'll write it. You know, maybe someone else will write part two. And maybe we've made it. So what, what are your what are your closing thoughts on Francis Fukuyama? Well, I. Like I said earlier in the podcast, I, I would I would recommend this to anyone. This is probably the best thing we've read yet, in my opinion. And it's uh, really lays out a great view of history and analyzes it through a philosophical framework that made a lot of sense to me. Um, it's a conservative book, but it's not. Uh, it's like broadly conservative. It does without telling us what to think on any individual issue that's now or then before the people. It's. It's one that uh, illustrates a conservative worldview of where mankind's been and where it's going. And um, I think I agree with him that we're getting closer, but there is no precise balance to be struck between liberty and equality. And that's that's something we've been wrestling with since the French Revolution. And I guess we'll continue to wrestle with uh, for the rest of our lives, at least. I a thousand percent agree with you. This is one of the best books I've ever read. I absolutely loved it and recommend it to anyone uh, interested in these types of questions. And I agree, broadly conservative, but I think that if if this was a communist minds podcast, that the book would be just as relevant and just as interesting. I think it's it could be marketed to, to the left just as well, but um, deeply insightful, makes me a huge fan of Fukuyama, makes me want to read his other books. In fact, I was just at the library yesterday looking at one of them. And, you know, he did, he just came out with a new book focused on uh, identity politics, but I heard him on this other podcast and I didn't understand what he was talking about because he kept talking about recognition. Like, what does that have to do with identity politics? Well, now I get it after reading this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, identity politics as it relates to the the need for recognition for the thymos and isothymia. So I'm like, oh, geez, I've got to read that too. Yeah, <laughs> too. That sounds super interesting. So maybe, maybe we'll do it for the podcast too, but All right, that's it for Francis Fukuyama. Next time, we're going to read a book called A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell from 1987. So hopefully we'll catch us then. Thanks.